Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that all of you could join us today. I think you're really going to enjoy our guest. Um, though we're going to be talking about things that have to do with green and sustainability like we do Every week on Go Green Radio, his perspective is refreshing. It's very positive. I think you're going to feel um, a lot of empowerment after you listen to Brian and what he has to say about his point of view about this huge challenge that we have before us, which is nothing less than our survival and the sustenance of our quality of life that we want to pass on to future generations. Brian Welch is our guest today, and uh, besides being the publisher of several magazines that you may be familiar with to include Mother Earth News, he has a book out called The Beautiful and Abundant, and uh, I just finished reading it this week, and I have to say I found it really invigorating, and I'm so glad to have you on the show today, Brian. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Thank you, Jill. It's great to be here. You know, as I mentioned, I really did enjoy your book, Beautiful and Abundant, but, you know, due to my work and my lifestyle and, you know, what I'm already sort of into, I'm kind of a green geek, if you will, I am predisposed to be receptive to your message. And I'm kind of interested to know how you envision this book making it outside of the so-called green echo chamber and into the hands of people who may not be as enmeshed in environmental work. Well, sure. I mean, that's always, a, that's always the challenge, isn't it? But I tried to set the book up specifically to do that, and I've had a lot of feedback from people who say, oh, gosh, I'm not an environmentalist at all, but I really liked your book because it relieved some of the anxieties I was feeling, you know. And one of the things that we know from, from all the decades of Mother Earth News and the receptivity of that magazine's audience is that lots of people who really care deeply about clean air and clean water and uh, a healthy planet don't necessarily identify themselves as environmentalists or as green geeks like you and me, but they do identify themselves as conscientious people. And so at least as I see the book, it's a book for any conscientious person who wants a great future for our species and for the planet that we share with all these other species. And anybody who wants that, I think, you know, can find something to enjoy in the book. The book is not explicitly an environmental book, but it is explicitly a book about creating a better future. Well, and that's very true. And we're going to walk through the process that you outline to help people envision that better future, because I, I really think it's unique. It's a fresh perspective that I've never seen, and I've read a lot of books on the shelf in this genre. 
You know, for at least a decade, some of the most ardent advocates of environmental protection have gone to great lengths to educate people on what will happen if we don't change our destructive habits. And I think that some consumers have either been frightened or maybe shamed into changing their behavior. But as you mentioned in the book, fear and avoidance of pain can only take us so far. There's only a kind of a minimum threshold of behavioral change that can be motivated in that way. In fact, you write... We don't need a disaster to motivate change. A great contagious idea or two can create all the motivation we need. I found that very comforting. But I'd love for you to explain your thinking on this to our listeners. Well, if you look back over what we've accomplished as a species, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's almost miraculous. And, and a lot of it just in the last hundred, last hundred to 150 years. I mean, it was only about 15 years from the, uh, from the invention of the, the pedal driven bicycle, the, the gear driven bicycle to human flight. And in between those was the invention of the motorcycle and the automobile. 66 years after we first lifted off from the dunes at Kitty Hawk when the Wright brothers were inventing the first flying machine, 66 years after that event, we were on our way to the moon. And so yeah. the, 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 our capacity for invention, our capacity for innovation, our capacity for solving problems is stunning. And it seems to me that, there's, that we're not going to be able to retreat from the challenges we're facing and, and somehow elude them in that way. We're going to have to innovate. We're going to have to create, create not only new ways of doing things, but new ways of seeing things. And I think that kind of change is always motivated by positive visions, is always motivated by the engagement of the human imagination in positive and enthusiastic and joyful ways. And so the big, you know, the central reason for writing the book was to try to start people thinking along those terms, because I think we need a lot of positive human energy to meet the challenges that we're facing. Well, and I think that's why you will hear Robert Kennedy Jr. talking about this as our generation's moonshot. Um, and sometimes Absolutely. we get, yep, we get so enmeshed in, in, in identifying the problems and then working the solutions that we don't move past that mindset into imagining all the what-ifs and, and the really big, big audacious goals that could take us past that kind of thinking. Absolutely. You know, and... I think the other thing that, you know, you mentioned Bobby Kennedy, and, and he and I are part of the same generation, and both of us have been working on environmental issues for several decades now. I think one of the things that happened to us over time is we realized that the effort to scare people into changing their lifestyles was just not working. I mean, it, it, it seems sort of extraordinary from a distance to look at, uh, at the history of environmentalism as a, as a popular topic, as a political topic, and realize it's still controversial today. When environmentalism yeah. is about having clean air and clean water and healthy lives for our children, how could that be controversial? Unfortunately, we've allowed it to become controversial because we've allowed ourselves to be characterized as chicken little, as relentlessly negative, as dressed in sackcloth and ashes, and advocating some kind of uncomfortable and austere human existence, which, of course, nobody wants. So in addition to visualizing a great future for humanity, I think this is a great time for those of us dedicated to the topics of environmentalism to start changing our tone and changing our identity in ways that helps us engage much larger audiences of people. Well, and, and I'm going to 
go rogue a little bit here and editorialize on my own. I think that a big part of the reason that environmentalists in the sort of establishment of environmentalists over the past few decades have made a huge mistake by becoming too um, endeared to one political party or the other. The more you politicize something and um, the more that you play sides politically, um, the more you're going to breed controversy. That's just the way it goes. And if instead the environmental movement seeks the common ground that all of us as human beings, as parents and grandparents share, which is a predisposition to care about the future we leave our children, I think that's a, a much more winning stance than standing firmly on the side uh, almost exclusively of one political party or the other. Just That's my own so two true. cents worth. That is, and, and that is such a good point. One of the ways that I sometimes talk about it is I say, well, you know, the vast majority of us can agree on the kind of world we want our great-grandchildren to live in. Mm-hmm. If we start there with our fundamental agreement on how we want the world to be 100 years from now, it might be easier to backtrack to what it is we need to do next. You see what I mean? Yes. And we start out from a point of agreement rather than starting out from a point of disagreement, which, of course, as you point out, is what partisan politics is all about. Well, and I think if environmentalists, you know, feel like the best solution to our problems is to mandate, regulate, and legislate our behavior instead of inspiring the best in our and having some faith in our fellow men and women to do the right thing for the right reasons that can stymie that positive vibe for as sure well. for sure that is so smartly put you know the other thing is no government and no multinational corporation has ever changed its behavior has ever changed the world in a positive way because it was preached at because it was harangued by some sort of interest group. The way change occurs is people change their minds. You know, during, during my lifetime, our attitudes toward racial prejudice and, in fact, even slavery have changed dramatically worldwide. The attitude toward racial prejudice is shifted about 90 degrees from where it was in, in, in the 19, early 1960s. And we changed that attitude because people, individuals, worldwide, changed their minds about what fairness, how fairness was, was uh, constituted. They changed their minds about right behavior and wrong behavior. They changed their minds about social justice. Humanity did, as individuals. And that's how that huge change took place. Governments, of course, then, when their constituents change their minds, governments change overnight. Companies change their practices. But it's not because somebody uh, preached at them or got some law passed. It's because the opinions of individual human beings changed. Well put, and I completely agree with you. You know, one of the things that I found so refreshing in your book, you know, we read in the headlines over and over again about droughts, extreme weather events, and that's capturing more and more of the headlines around the world as we begin to see these patterns emerging. And it seems like the buzzword of the decade so far is scarcity. Droughts cause scarcity, scarcity of water, scarcity of food, etc. Yet in your book, you ask your readers to imagine a world of abundance. And I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about how we move past these reports of diminished resources to a place where we can truly embrace the notion that we can create abundance for future generations. Yeah, well, you know, there's this funny 
unspoken truth at the center of all these conversations. Um, the, the, the unspoken truth is we, as human beings, now have all the tools we need to dictate the size of our population. If we decide that we have to take the human population to its absolute upper limit before we go about managing our own population, well, then scarcity is going to be a daily issue. We're always going to be wrestling because we're going to be up against that margin all the time. But I just ask people, well, gosh, if, if we can agree that at some point we will have um, filled our habitat, basically come to our limit, our, our population limit as a species, if we agree that at some point that has to be managed, well, why not manage it as a, at a lower level that leaves plenty of room, both literal and figurative room, for comfortable, abundant, innovative lifestyles? I mm-hmm. live on a farm. I raise a lot of meat and, and, uh, and have a lot of animals and have a lot of space around my home. And I really treasure that lifestyle. I think it's a green lifestyle. I'd like that lifestyle, though, to be available to anyone who would enjoy that lifestyle worldwide. And I don't think that's unreasonable. But we would have to leave the space necessary so people who wanted to could be small farmers and not Mm -hmm. every inch of farm ground turned into a big industrial farm. That'll require – pardon me? I was going to say, Brian, you know, you have an interesting approach to population issues, and I want to go into that in depth. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, I want you to talk about that very issue of how do we view population and what's a a comfortable way that we can manage that without creating sort of a... Uh, you know, inciting a riot. (laughs) And so uh, we're going to cover that when we come back. Don't go away, folks. We've got much more with Brian Welch right after this commercial break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Two views. Different topics. Questions. Answers. News. And advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, our guest today is Brian Welch. He is, of course, the publisher of several uh, publications that you might be familiar with. Mother Earth News just happens to be the one that I'm most familiar with. But he's got a new book out called Beautiful and Abundant, Building the World We Want. And I highly recommend the book. If you'd like more information, don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But you can follow along as I'm interviewing Brian if you open a new tab in your web browser and go to Beautiful and Abundant, spell out the word and, beautifulandabundant.com. And that's where you can find out more about the book. You can read the first chapter. You can purchase it and find out more about what we're talking about. Before the break, we were talking a bit about how it is that we can create a world of abundance when right now it seems like we talk about scarcity much more than abundance. And Brian was talking about some of the things that uh, a lot of people in the environmental industry talk about, and that's population issues. And sometimes, you know, we've had some guests on this show who had uh, some viewpoints on that subject that you know, upset some of our listeners that's a little bit more uh, maybe extreme or seemingly harsh in terms of population control measures. But uh, Brian's point of view on this issue I found refreshingly different. And I'd like for you to go into more detail about how you think we might be able to address this issue and the limitations that we're hitting in terms of how many people our planet can comfortably sustain. Well, you know what you were saying earlier, Jill, about... Um, the fact that change comes through individual people and that aligning oneself with a particular political party or trying to get governments to clamp down on certain kinds of human behavior um, doesn't work unless there's a public consensus that that mm-hmm. kind of change, that that sort of policy should, should, take, should, should be out there, should take place, should be in force. Um, I think that's ultimately true when it comes to discuss discussion of population. Just before we went to the break, I was just saying that inevitably, inevitably, we must eventually manage our own population. No pasture can hold an infinite number of cows. No planet can hold an infinite number of human beings. So if we accept that ultimately we'll have to manage our population, there are few people who don't, but the majority of people acknowledge that that's an obvious fact. If we must eventually manage it, then why not start talking about what level we'd like to manage it at? And why not leave enough room for uh, big wildernesses full of unsullied nature? 
Why not leave enough room for people to live on an acreage and grow their own food if they want to? Why not leave enough room for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to enjoy time in the outdoors, in nature, on every continent, in every country, in every biological system? Why not, why not maintain this planet as the astonishing, abundant place that God created? We can do that by voluntarily limiting our population, but the idea of legislating a population limit is crazy as far as I'm concerned. That's the fastest way to alienate people from this very important conversation. And the, the involvement in the vast majority of human beings in this conversation is by far the more important thing than some kind of short-term government limit on reproduction. We really don't want government involved in reproduction in any way, shape, or form. I, am, I, I hold a very strong opinion on that point. But I do want my neighbors, my friends, the people who, my fellow citizens, my fellow inhabitants of Earth, to begin the conversation, because I think eventually we'll, we'll reach the consensus that a smaller human population is preferable because it allows for much superior lifestyles for future generations. Mm-hmm. Well, and it doesn't help when some um, of the millennial organization, or I mean generation, uh, are almost critical of those of us who've already had however many children we're going to have, and almost come at this issue from a self-righteous, I will not have kids point of view, and uh, you know, I've I've heard uh, kind of disparaging remarks about you know procreators as if that's something wrong. There's something wrong or uh, immoral from an environmental standpoint to procreate at all, and I think that's a big mistake as well. I, I just feel like your approach is so much more inclusive, and the more that people who are concerned about this issue can um, imitate that inclusive vocabulary and spirit, uh, the better off we'll be. I really do. Well, I'm very much in favor of continued biological reproduction for humanity. I'll go on the record. (laughs) I hope we keep that up. I think it's important. (laughs) You know, another factor there, of course, is people who are anti-procreator or whatever it is they're saying. I mean, you know, I allow a little bit for naivete and for, you know, activist mindset and all that. But it is the fact that I have children that awoke the deepest environmental impulses inside of me. me it was the birth of my children that made me think, hey, I want this planet to be a terrific, terrific, terrific place mm-hmm. for many generations in the future. And I have a personal stake in that. I think Precise. that's a, a very important source of, of inspiration and motivation. And I think lots and lots of people feel that. So... You know, it could be that we are better environmentalists as procreators than we would be if we weren't. I know that personally that's absolutely the case for me. It really wasn't until I had DNA in the game, you know, that would go beyond my own lifespan. You know, and, and you know, when that baby's born, you'll do anything to protect them. And when you realize that, you know, at some point you ultimately will not be able to do that, what can you do right here, right now? to 
shape the future that we want. I, I run a nonprofit organization that's called the Go Green Initiative. It's a, an environmental education program, and I've often said it's not enough to prepare our children for the future. We must prepare the future for our children. And that is really what has kept me going when it comes to looking at resource conservation and all the things that we can do to preserve the foundations of a good standard of living we want to leave them. So I think that we are in agreement on that point. One of the things I wanted to ask you, because you point this out in your book, is that, and it's so true, our economy is built to succeed based upon population growth. And you have a chapter in the book entitled The Big Ponzi. And you cited um, Italy and Spain as countries in which the population has sort of stabilized. But, of course, both countries, as so many European countries are, are experiencing a great deal of economic stress. And there's a lot of variables that contribute to that, of course. But how do you envision our world economy adjusting to a leveling off or even a decrease in the overall human population? Well, we're going to have – that's another thing we're going to have to consciously manage. We're going to have to consciously redesign our economic systems to accommodate fewer customers. And it's going to be tricky, and we haven't really even begun work on it yet. I mean, there's a few economists out there doing some fairly interesting and pioneering things. But unfortunately, we have no real live laboratory in which to test new economic ideas of this kind because everywhere in the world that the native population is stable, virtually every country where the, where the, the birth rate is down at a sort of equilibrium level is importing uh, um immigrants from other places. And so we haven't yet encountered the environment where these theories, these ideas can be tested. And that puts, it at, put, put, puts us at a bit of a disadvantage. But we need to be thinking about it. And of course, mm-hmm. economics are within our control. They aren't, uh, God didn't create free enterprise economics. We did. And we're capable of adapting it to any situation. My feeling is just that it's time to start thinking about that because it is going to be a very different environment economically, and it will require significant changes in the structure of our economics. I'm not arguing for anything other than free enterprise. I believe in free enterprise economics. I'm a capitalist and have been all my life. But capitalism is going to have to grow up a little bit to operate successfully in a world where you don't just have more and more customers every year because the birth rate is supply, supplying them. Well, you know, it's so true. And and our educational system, particularly at the higher education uh, level, has adapted to many changes. And this is no different in my point of view. I mean, uh, I went to a land-grant university, University of Illinois, and that was very practically and pragmatically designed to help our economy in the state of Illinois shift from an agrarian-only economy to a more industrial economy. And there were very practical engineering classes and, and um, sectors of, of, you know, majors and uh, educational systems set up to help us do exactly that. And, and there's no reason why we couldn't engage our higher education system in a similar transformation of the economy. So, you know, I think, I think you're exactly right. And I think that a lot of environmentalists that I have spoken with have talked about, as we mentioned, a lot of legislation and, and that's been a big focus of what I've observed of the environmental movement. But you talk about the power of entrepreneurialism and how entrepreneurs um, could really help us create this new world of beauty and abundance. And I'd like for you to talk about that just a little bit. 
Well, you know, you, as, as you were saying, there's um, the economy is going to have to be reinvented to some extent or another, and I think it's entrepreneurs who will do that, and they're already beginning. I mean, already we're we're existing in a world where we're seeing uh, we're seeing business adapt to a world in which their practices are quite transparent from the way that they mine their raw materials, the way the manufacturing processes, um, their the way they treat employees worldwide. All of these things are now visible to the customer. And the customer um, is beginning to pay attention to those things and assign values to the, to the practices of, of these companies so that conscientiousness it comes to have an economic value in the marketplace. That's truer and truer every day. I mean, imagine five years ago, the most valuable company in the world, which is Apple Computer, the most valuable company in the world, changing its policies fundamentally because people criticized the morale levels of a factory in China. I mean, this is a new world in which conscientiousness has significant economic value. So if conscientiousness can have economic value, how can we examine all the cycles of a business's operations and assign value at each point. If a company is more more environmentally responsible, their product's slightly more valuable. If they're fairer in their treatment of their workers, then their product's a little more valuable. I think that's one of the ways in which capitalism is going to be reinvented so that value is reassigned and redistributed based on qualities other than digging up the most stuff and slapping it together and selling it to the most people at the lowest possible price, which is the old model, of course. Well said. You know, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much more with Brian Welch, and I'm just fascinated by this discussion. So, folks, don't go away. This is a discussion you do not want to miss. Much more right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, first of all, thanks for tuning in. But secondly, our guest is Brian Welch, and I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation. He's written a book called Beautiful and Abundant, Building the World We Want. You can check it out at www. Actually, you don't even have to do the www, just beautifulandabundant.com. And um, this his ideas are just so refreshingly positive um, in a time when so much of what we talk about with the environment is probably Problems, problems, and possible solutions and possible legislation. His point of view is so refreshingly empowering, and I'm so glad that he could join us today. Um, Brian, as I was reading your book, I was reading the subsection entitled The Smart Grid, and I, I totally agree with your views, but your candor in introducing them just completely cracked me up. You wrote, our current power grids are dumb. <laughs> and that just, I, it, it caught me off guard, made me laugh, and I couldn't wait to read what else you had to say. So I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about your thinking on our electricity grid and, and our, you know, uh, evolution to a smarter grid. Well, you know, there's a lot of chit chat about the smart grid these days, but fundamentally, fundamentally, the smart grid would would allow people to generate their own power if they wanted to, and to put it back into the grid from each of their locations, wherever they are, their homes, their businesses, whatever. Which just strikes me as so obviously a good thing. Not only because it allows more renewable energy, more solar energy and wind energy to get into the grid, but also. Think about how secure our power system would be if we had literally millions of points of generation contributing from all these different locations so that, let's say, we had a a natural disaster in a particular place. It could be that natural disaster, even if it took down a big generating station, would not take down much of the grid because people, individuals, individual homeowners, individual businesses, would then be putting power back into the grid from their own locations. That -hmm. seems to be so good for society in such an obvious way that human beings should be cooperating with each other in a material fashion by, by adding to the power grid. It just seems so obvious to me that I thought, well, you know, the, the fact that we can't do that, basically for lack of the right kind of metering systems, is just crazy in this day and age, or rather dumb in this day mm-hmm. and age. And every human being, if they sat and thought about it, I think would just be in favor. And it's really not that big a technological change. We have all the tools we need to do it. It's uh, a little bit of redesign, few installations, but gosh, what a great thing it would be, don't you think? Well, I do, but I, I, I'll tell you, in my mind, the biggest obstacle to that is public policy. Here in California, um, you know, there are incentives to put distributed generation um, units, whether it's solar or wind, in different locations. However, if you create excess wattage or megawattage or kilowatt hours past what you can use, there's no financial incentive to do so. So, for instance, um, you know, if you generate all the power that you use, well, then you're not paying the utility anything whatsoever. But if you generate more than you use, that energy does go into the grid, but you can't sell it. You receive no financial reward. So 
companies or individuals who could afford to generate more electricity than they can use have no financial incentive to do that. That's not the case in every state and not in, in every uh, local power board. Some places in the U.S. have that kind of public policy that says, hey, if you can generate as much as you can and we'll pay you for it for whatever you're not actually using, which I think is very, very smart. So part of it is technology and part of it is public policy. I think it's a great idea, however. You talk about different energy technologies in the book and I'd like for you to discuss with our listeners which one excite you the most in terms of their potential impact on the future of the planet? Well, the, the obvious ones at the top of the list are always uh, solar and wind, and uh, they are growing rapidly. Photovoltaics are getting rapidly more efficient, and uh, photovoltaic cell, cells are getting much cheaper very rapidly. So all of these things are becoming more economically feasible day by day. I must say, one of them that I'm craziest about and I don't hear talked about as much in the media is geothermal. We have this, this oven, this magnificent, virtually limitless source of power just a couple of miles below our feet, wherever we live in the world. Historically, though, and this is true of every kind of human enterprise, we can only finance things that pay off within a career-length Time horizon. What right. I mean by that is, um, any of all of the all of us in business need to be involved in enterprises that somehow pay off the investment during our careers. Otherwise, it's very difficult for us to sell the idea to the people who might finance it. And the problem with geothermal is the investment up front in tapping into this gigantic power source is rather large, probably too large for it to pay off during my career or yours. It, but that shouldn't be a barrier, and I believe that we can engineer um, the uh, financial structures we need to justify the development of geothermal, and it has the advantage of being easily tapped once you, once you have the infrastructure in place, being virtually limitless, and running 24 hours a day no matter the weather which makes mm -hmm. it by the most reliable of the renewable en energy sources, probably the cleanest of the renewable energy sources, and, as I say, just a few billion dollars beneath our feet. Well, and, and as we hear more and more about drilling for... You know, drilling into shale, I mean, and, and the, uh, injection wells that the wastewater from that process going, are going into. I mean, they're drilling pretty doggone deep. Uh, it's not like we couldn't, but you're right. The, the payoff, the return on investment would be, um, you know, substantially longer than, than that industry for sure. Now, your power in Northern California where you live, Joe, is actually to a very great degree um, generated by geothermal. You have one of the world's That's largest right. geothermal plants just north of you in Marin County. And yep. it supplies uh, a very high percentage of the power all the way from the Golden Gate Bridge to northern Oregon. And so uh, a lot of days when you turn the lights on, it may actually be coming from geothermal, which I find kind of inspiring and a great you know, example of how good it can be. Well, that's very true, and that's why Pacific Gas and Electric, our local utility, has been able to realize a pretty good portfolio of renewable energy. I mean, they, they were kind of predisposed to be successful because of that, um, yes, because right. of that they capability. Had a, they were set up for success by that project. I totally agree. It's really been good yep. for them.
Yep, that's the that's for sure. You know, you talk about sustainable farming as well in the book, and there is a growing movement to reconnect people with those who grow their food. Uh, we've talked about that in different ways on Go Green Radio, but I'd love for you to talk about the impact you believe this movement will have on the food industry in America, especially when the, one of the biggest stories of the day is pink slime. What uh, <laughs> what impact do you see this movement of reconnecting people to their um, food makers? Uh, what's what's that going to do for us over the next 10 years or so? It's a revolutionary change already. I mean, every day the public awareness of how we create food in the industrial system is rising. And the majority of people, once they get a close look at industrial food production, would prefer that their food come to them through some more humane and environmentally sensitive method. Um, it's Price has been an issue, you know. Of course, here in the U.S., food makes up such a small percentage of what of our total expenses that you could easily see things shifting around a little bit and other things becoming less expensive. Perhaps we spent less money on gasoline, for instance. It might free up some resources that would go into food, but people are willing to pay more if they really do know that their food is being produced in humane and, and, and environmentally responsible ways. And that's creating a revolution in farming and giving a lot of farm families a better living because they're willing to make a direct connection between themselves and their farm with the people who consume the food they create. And it's a lot of fun all the way around. I mean, my customers love to come out to my farm and visit the cattle and the sheep and the goats. And, of course, I love living there and farming and creating the food and I like knowing the families that consume the food. There's something fundamentally right about all that. And, of course, it's where we all came from. It's the traditional human lifestyle, living connected to nature and connected to the sources of our sustenance. Well, and I think the, the word that comes to my mind is accountability. When you know, as the food producer, who your food is going to, and likewise, the people know where their food came from, it's, it's just like I wouldn't do anything to harm my neighbors. You know, I mean, I, I live in a little suburban neighborhood. I wouldn't purposely or casually poison their, you know, their existence. I, you know, and I, I wouldn't do anything to diminish their lifestyle. It becomes food production becomes more neighborly when you bring this aspect of farmers markets and uh, or more organics and locally grown food. There's this accountability between the food producer and the consumer that I think is very healthy. It's just like you were talking about the transparency of the supply chain for Apple. That when people knew what other human beings had to go through to create their iPad. That felt terrible. That kind of transparency and accountability throughout the supply chain, I think, also um, applies to the food supply chain as well. Absolutely. Well, we say that both our animals and our customers are our friends, and we wouldn't treat any of them um, in unconscientious, callous ways. And the consciousness that's embedded in farming like we do is the most rewarding thing about it. It's rewarding for us. I think it's rewarding for our customers, and I think it's rewarding for the animals who we care for. 
Well, it sounds like it. I'd love to visit. I love the name of your your ranch, Rancho Cappuccino. I think that's that's awesome. <laughs> I'd love to come visit one of these days. You know well, why I call a- it that? Yes, the story in your book about why you call it that is is very cute. And we'll actually, I'll let you tell that story to our listeners because it's very cute. Um, after we take a quick commercial break, folks, don't go away. We've got much more with Brian Welch right after this quick commercial break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and is the co-founder of BR Public Relations, who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to The Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our guest today, if you happen to just be joining in with us, is Brian Welch, author of Beautiful and Abundant, Building the World We Want. You can check out his book and much more about him and his ranch and his work at beautifulandabundant.com. Just before the break, we were talking about his uh, ranch. It's called Rancho Cappuccino, and the story of why it's called Rancho Cappuccino is very cute. Brian, why don't you share that with our listeners? Well, somebody was making fun of me. Somebody around, uh, somebody nearby here in Kansas, making fun of me and uh, said that I was. Uh, he thought I was one of those cappuccino cowboys. I, was, I told him <laughs> that my, you know, my we were close to town. We were two miles from Starbucks. He said, "Oh yeah, you're one of those cappuccino cowboys." And I thought, "Yeah, that's exactly what I am." And in, in fact, I think that's a good thing in the sense that there's no reason why our farms can't be great places to live. You know, in fact, shouldn't we be paying attention to that on all of our farms across North America and around the world? Shouldn't every farm and every ranch 
be a neat place where we're not only creating food, but we're also creating a lifestyle for ourselves and our animals. We're creating some, you know, a sort of art, a landscape. We're creating a healthy environment. All that feeds back into it. So I, I embraced the notion of being a cappuccino cowboy by just calling the place Rancho Cappuccino. <laughs> I'm envisioning a brand new product available at Starbucks, a great big belt buckle with the Starbucks logo on it. For, <laughs> I love that the- idea. That's a, I, I might suggest that to somebody. I love it. All the all the cappuccino cowboys out there can have the belt buckle to go along with their lifestyle. <laughs> exactly, right. You know, one of the concepts that I appreciated so much, it appealed so much to my sense of social justice that you talk about in your epilogue, was the notion that the poor in our world must be elevated. And I'd like for you to talk about how that, as a collective goal, could help create a more sustainable future for all inhabitants of the Earth. Well, first I want to say they have been elevated. Um, true. 150 years ago, 85% of humanity lived at what we would call a very abject level of poverty, what we would equate to, you know, less than a dollar a day in income uh, after we do all the analysis of the inflation rate and everything. It was 85% of human beings worldwide. Today, that's down to about 15%. So our intention of helping the poor and elevating the poor has been realized to an extent in the world. But that isn't a goal that we ever fully achieve. As long as there's economic disparity, there will always be some people who are living at a, at a level of poverty that's just inhumane, that we shouldn't tolerate. And there's a new reason for that in a world where we need to form consensuses between countries, between cultures around the world about how to preserve our habitat, how to conserve our resources. We really need a sense of human, human togetherness and mutual interest in order to form a consensus like the one I'm, I'm describing. To get that consensus, we have to make sure that our economic systems are fair, and poverty is the great glaring illustration of the unfairness in the world. Now, I'm not suggesting everybody should be equally affluent because mm-hmm. I think economic disparity creates a lot of energy in, cult- in our culture and in the system. And that energy, the innovation that comes out of people trying to elevate themselves is a great energy and important part of our society. But mm-hmm. I do think that the obvious poverty in the, in the vast slums in many parts of the world is just an illustration of how some people really have nothing to gain from environmental sensitivity, have mm-hmm. nothing to gain from the overall prosperity of other nations. We have to include those people so that they are part of our effort to create an overall sense of sustainability, fairness, and prosperity around the world. I agree. I think that's, you know, and really so much of environmental protection in my mind comes down to that, that spirit of, of love and concern for your fellow human beings. Absolutely. And, and I, yes, that's so true. That's right. It's mm-hmm. not about just you and me and our families. It's about right. concern for everybody, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think that that is a much more compelling argument than, um, you know, God love them. 
polar bears, you know, they're cute and we don't want them to lose their habitat. But the humanness of the environmental protection movement, I think, could stand a lot more emphasis. And I think it's coming. I really do. You know, Brian, I was really struck by something that you wrote in your epilogue. And it isn't because I don't agree, because I really do. It's just that I rarely find leaders in the environmental establishment these days who are willing to veer outside of a purely secular view of environmental protection. Here's what you wrote. In my vision, every unique ecosystem across the globe would be preserved in its natural state, preserved as God created them. I love that, but that's not exactly mainstream in our world. And in your view, Brian, do you think that a purely secular viewpoint will suffice to achieve a beautiful and abundant future for subsequent generations? Or do you think that there needs to be some form of spiritual appreciation for nature the way God created it? Gosh, you know, I almost never use those labels. And I don't, I've never known anybody who was purely secular. I've also never known anyone who was purely spiritual. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. I think we're all a mix of those qualities. What I uh, here's what I do think. I think that God obviously loves biological diversity because God's creation put a unique creature in every tiny natural niche in this vast ecosystem of our planet. And if God loves biological diversity and, and biolog- the biological creation that's purely God's uh, product, then we should be very careful about undermining that diversity and about undermining this, the planet's fecundity. Um, that's, that's all part of God's plan, and I really feel God calls on us to support that plan. I feel a religious fervor about this. You know, the stone tablet, if there's a physical stone tablet, it's God's natural creation on this planet. It would be a terrible mistake to lose God's original word as it was written in God's creation. And so that's, that's really what we're working to, to preserve, I think. Beautifully said, and so comforting for me. I just, everything that you're saying just gives me such a warm and positive feeling. And in fact, the way that you conclude your book, um, made me feel the same way. You know, sometimes there's a lot of hand-wringing and fear. Oh my goodness, we're alive at such a difficult time. How will we ever survive? But you conclude the book with the concept that to be alive at this time, when it's such an important and pivotal time with incredible challenges before us, is actually a great privilege. And I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about that point of view. Well, you know, there's one creature that we know of in all in the whole universe there's one creation there's one creature we know of who can conceptualize its own impact on its habitat and that creature is us we happen to be here you and i at the time in human history when we're first coming to grips with both that capability and that responsibility it is in a way the definitive moment for humanity because our ability to conceptualize our impact on the habitat defines us as human, and we are now here to exercise that defining characteristic. So it's literally a definitive moment for humanity. Well, it's kind of a thrill, isn't it? I mean, we're showing up for the final exam, Jill, (laughs) and uh, I'm excited about it. You know, I'm excited to, to be part of the solution, And I'm excited to watch my fellow human beings create and innovate 
and lead us into hopefully a beautiful, abundant, and prosperous future. Oh, Brian, I just feel like you've you've lifted my spirits and made me believe. I, I'm so thrilled that you were able to come on Go Green Radio, and I'd be even more thrilled if our listeners would check out your website and consider purchasing your book for themselves because I think they would cr- gain a lot of insight and comfort and energy from it, energy to move forward with fervor and the same sense of of excitement that you do. And again, that website is beautifulandabundant.com. Brian, thank you for being with us on Go Green Radio. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'll be here same time, same place next week. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.